Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to be in the very last verse of chapter 7 and look at the first 11 verses in chapter 8 this morning in a message I've entitled, Hello, Justice, Meet Mercy. This message I'm anticipating will be one of the most peculiar messages I've preached since I've been pastor here over the last 15 plus years. And as God's providence would have it, it is family worship when our children are in the room, when we're discussing the subject matter of a woman caught in adultery and her uh, accusers want to pelt her with stones until she's dead. Welcome, children. Uh, Wouldn't have necessarily chosen this passage for Kingdom Kids being in here, but we are going verse by verse through our trek through the New Testament. Secondly, uh, and probably more complicating matters, is the fact that this passage in your New Testament was not originally written by John and wasn't originally in this gospel. What? The best and most conservative scholars do not believe it was there originally, but it was added sometime later and inserted right here. In fact, if you look in your Bible, if you have a Bible open, uh, and not just your Bible app or the bulletin, for instance, if you use an ESV like we use for preaching here, you'll notice, in fact, look at this next slide, there is a notation before verse 53 that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. The New American, uh, excuse me, the Christian Standard Bible, it says the exact same thing because they're a bunch of copycats of the ESV. Uh, Number three, the New American Standard Bible, which is my favorite translation, uh, though it's a little bit wooden and difficult for some reading, says this, John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not found in in most of the old manuscripts. The New Living Translation, some of you use that, it says... Uh, The most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And then the NIV, the New International Version, has probably the most extensive explanation. It says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, or Luke 24, 53. And then the RSV, I didn't even put it up there because the Revised Standard Version completely deletes this passage from their translation. So this reality can be somewhat confusing to both the casual observer and even the committed Bible student because we could think, does this questionable addition to our Bibles, does it call into question the trustworthiness of the Bible? Does it call into question that what we're holding in our hands is actually what was written? If this familiar exchange between Jesus and the woman caught in adultery where he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. If this wasn't originally in the Bible in John's gospel, then is the whole foundation of our faith shaky? No. The answer to those questions is absolutely not. In fact, what I'm going to attempt to show you in a few brief moments before we actually get to this account is that this doesn't call into question the trustworthiness of the Bible. It actually further solidifies the trustworthiness of the Bible. And here's why. Look at this next slide. The questionable inclusion of this passage actually serves to strengthen the trustworthiness of the Bibles we hold in our hands, not undercut or undermine them. 
Now, the fundamental reason why this is true, and you hang with me for a few minutes, okay? You with me, students? Okay, the reason this is true is because of this next academic discipline known as textual criticism. Textual criticism. Now, when I first heard this phrase, textual criticism, about 25 years ago when I was in Bible college, and my immediate reaction, knee-jerk reaction to this phrase, textual criticism, huh, I don't want to criticize the text of the Bible. I don't want to critique the scripture, but that's not what the term textual criticism actually means. Instead, here's a good uh, explanation of what textual criticism is. It's thinking critically about manuscripts and variations in the biblical texts in order to identify the original reading of the Bible. Now, let me break that down. What does this mean? The original writings of the books of the Bible were all written down by hand. They weren't typewriters. They weren't copy machines. They weren't computers. It was all handwritten, dictated to a scribe or handwritten by the author. Paper, as we know it today, is a relatively new invention in human history. So in Bible days, they wrote on something called papyrus. Papyrus. What is that? Well, papyrus is a plan. Here's a little how-to if you want to make your own papyrus sheets, okay? You first have to harvest the plant, then cut this, this section of the stalk off and strip that stalk into little slivers. Then you take those slivers and you soak it and boil it in water till it becomes very pliable. Then you take those individual strips and you interweave them together until you have a full sheet. Then you cover it with a layer of glue and flatten it out, lay it under a marble slab for seven days, then take it out and trim the edges and you have, voila, a sheet of paper. That's the process they had to go through to make one single sheet of paper. Think of how many pages are in your Bible, right? So this was uh, the, the issue. And the original writings of the Bibles, that, that material, it does not last forever. It's biodegradable. And because it's made of Bible, biodegradable material, what it happens? It degrades over time. It begins to break down. It begins to tear apart, especially with a lot of use and a lot of reading. Uh, those pieces of papyrus break down. So... Of the original 66 books of the Bible, guess how many first edition, how many original copies we have of the 66 books of the Bible? This many. <laughs> there are none that exist. All those papyrus, all the vellum, which is dried skin stretched out, they would use that as a material to write on too, um, it's all gone. It's all degraded. It's all lost forever. So all we have available to us from the original writings of the Bible are copies and copies of copies of copies. But don't let that worry you. You see, the early Christians recognized the incredible importance of these documents. And so they would hand copy by hand from one papyrus to another papyrus. Not just one time or two times or three times, but dozens of times so they could distribute it among all the local churches, like our local church, throughout the region. So in existence today, again, we don't have any original autographs, any original handwritten writings of the authors. We only have copies, but we have an extensive number of copies. And those copies are preserved in libraries around the world. The most extensive uh, collection of those is in a library in Munster, Germany, um, where it has uh, um, 
incredible collection of these ancient manuscripts. They've all been digitally uh, recorded, and they're available at every seminary, at every Bible college, at every university for students and scholars alike to study and compare. Now, the deal is this. You see a chart on your outline. I've got it on the screen as well. There is no ancient book that comes close to this kind of wealth of diverse preservation. In fact, if you notice some of these, you you see that top row there. You see the author, the date the author wrote the, the work, the earliest copy we have today, and the time span between when he originally wrote it and the earliest copy we have and how many copies we have. So for instance, consider Aristotle. He wrote it 300 BC. The earliest copy we have is dated at 1100 AD. So there's 1400 years between when Aristotle wrote and the earliest copy we have. And there's only five copies. So imagine, university student, you go into your philosophy class and your professor begins to talk about uh, Aristotle and begins to talk about his branch of philosophy. And you say, excuse me, uh, we can't believe a thing you're saying because we only have five copies of what Aristotle wrote and further, there's a 1,400 years or 1,100 years between, no, 1,400 years between when he wrote and the earliest we have. How can we possibly believe that what you're saying Aristotle wrote, he actually wrote? Now, the professor would say, get out of my class, right? We would never say that. But think about the Bible, the New Testament in particular. It was written around 100 AD. The earliest copy we have has been dated at 200 AD, and that's only 100 years between them. How many copies do we have? Not seven, not 10, not five. We have the latest number, I just looked it up this week, is 5,856 copies. There is no other book that comes anywhere close to this kind of preservation of this ancient work, the Bible alone. And in addition to these 5,856 Greek manuscripts, there are over 20,000 Latin Armenian, and other translations uh, of the original work in existence around the world. And think about this practical reality. Let's say I came to you and I said, I need you to do me a favor. I've got an important project for you. I want you to take the Gospel of John that we're studying here on Sunday mornings, and I want you to copy it word for word by hand on some notebook paper. There are 18,000 words plus in English in the Gospel of John. Do you think you'd make any mistakes? Of course you would. You'd make dozens. Now imagine there's 5,856 copies. You think there's gonna be variances between the copies that are all handwritten? Again, no printing press, no typewriters, no copy machines. This is all done by hand. Of course there will be. But what this great vast number of manuscripts gives us is the opportunity to compare and contrast, and this is what textual criticism does. Through comparing and contrasting both the age of the script and the number, we can come at a very high degree of certainty as to what was, is originally in the Bible. So let's get back to our passage. If you have a King James Bible, there are no footnotes that say this was not originally in the Greek New Testament. Here's why. Because the Bible that the King James Version was translated from, the Greek text that the King James Version was translated from was developed by a scholar in the 16th century by the name of Erasmus. Erasmus. He, um, this was after Gutenberg's printing press, and so he has the printing press available. 
he compiles this Greek New Testament. It's not in English. It's not in Latin. It's not in German. It's in Greek. All Greek. It's all Greek to me. It's all Greek. Sorry. You got to use that joke when you talk about Greek. Um, And so he compiles it, puts it together, and it's printed on the printing press. This is the Greek document the King James Bible translators translated from. Now, let me tell you about Erasmus's work. It's called the Textus Receptus. In Latin, it means to receive text. His work was based off of seven manuscripts, not 5,836. And of those seven manuscripts, the oldest was dated at the 12th century, so over 1,000 years removed from the original autographs. So that was Erasmus's Greek text. It is a phenomenal feat that he accomplished. Now, he didn't even have a complete New Testament. He had to take some of his translations from the Latin Vulgate and other translations, but he did the best with what he had. He had seven, and he made, it, made the Greek New Testament. Now, the New Testament, and, and it included, by the way, because it was a later manuscript, this John 7:53 through 8:11 inserted right here in his copies. The Bible that we use and the Bible that likely you hold in your hand, if it's an NASB or NIV or ESV, CSB, it was based off of this Greek Bible. I got this Greek Bible about 22 years ago when I was in seminary. This is the Bible I used in my Greek class. And I'm going to put it on the front here. You can come look at it and read it. Of course, it's all Greek to you. It is. And it's that very Greek New Testament our Bibles were translated from. And that Greek New Testament was developed not from seven manuscripts dated a thousand years from the time of Christ, but 5,000 plus manuscripts dated within a hundred years of the time of Christ. Which one do you think is more reliable? The older, the closer, and the more copies we have. But now, here we are at this passage that the brightest, most learned scholars say John didn't write it. What's a preacher to do? We just close our Bibles and go home now? (laughs) Good question, class. Well, here's what we're going to do. I want you to show you a couple of quotes. One commentary I read every week without fail is this one right here. It's called The Gospel According to John by D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson is who I believe is probably the greatest living New Testament scholar today. Here's what he said in this commentary. First, he gives nine reasons, compelling reasons, why this was not originally part of John's gospel. But then he says this, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Similar stories are found in other sources. The narrative also has a number of parallels with stories in the synoptic gospels. The reason for its insertion here may have been to illustrate John 7:24: do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Another modern day scholar by the name of Bruce Metzger in his book, A Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament, also concluded the evidence is overwhelming. John didn't write this passage, but then he concludes like this. This case against John's authorship appears to be conclusive. At the same time, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western church and which was subsequently incorporated into various manuscripts at various places. So although we can conclude this passage was not written by John, it was inserted later, we also have a very high degree of certainty that this event actually happened. That this story that we're about to read about of Jesus 
confronting the religious leaders who want to stone a woman caught in adultery and him forgiving her, that it actually occurred. That was a part of the verbal or oral tradition of the church. And this passage does not question or call into uh, consideration or contradict anything we know about Jesus, his ministry, and certainly not his mercy. In fact, just the opposite. It's a beautiful illustration of who Jesus is. And so for that reason, I don't have any problem preaching it. Because this story, this account, that was part of the oral tradition of the early church, beautifully portrays our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's read it with all that four pages of introduction, okay? Here's the passage. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Hello, justice. Meet mercy. Sometimes in our reading of the Bible, we can encounter a sin that is so staggering, it takes our breath away. If you consider Pharaoh in the Old Testament and King Herod in the New Testament, that literally killed infant baby children to preserve their position and their rule, it's awful. It's disgusting. Consider Jezebel in the Old Testament as she was jealous and envious of Naboth's little small vineyard. She had Naboth killed so she could take his vineyard away from him. Disgusting. Despicable. Well, in this passage, there is a sin that ranks right up there with the worst of them. I'm not talking about adultery. The adultery, particularly in our modern era, has done more to damage the fabric of our society and friends to mess up the church. That's not the sin here. The sin here is of this heinous act by these willful, intentional, conspiratorial Pharisees to use a woman to entrap Jesus in some dilemma of the law. That's evil. It's wicked. There are several things here from this account I want us to consider which serve to highlight and to display for us the compelling mercy of Jesus in the face of mob justice. Here's the first one. Number one, I want us to consider that there is a despicable plot. There is a despicable plot. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, what we know about Jewish legal procedures makes it clear that this was not just an unintentional 
coincidence where some of these men just happened to be walking by, peered in a window, and they happened to see and catch this woman in the act of adultery. But rather, it was a complete setup. It was an evil conspiracy. You see, in the time of Christ, Jewish procedures legally were very, very careful. And this was especially true in a, in a crime that was punishable by death, which according to the Old Testament law, adultery was punishable by death. So in order to secure a conviction, you had to make sure that every witness agreed on every single aspect of the accusation. In the apocryphal book of Suzanne, which is a Jewish historical book, there's a similar story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She was brought before the Sanhedrin to stand trial, but she was acquitted. She was found not guilty. Here's why. Because the two witnesses in the case could not agree upon what kind of tree the act was done under. So they threw the case out. Every small detail of the accusation had to be corroborated by two or three witnesses. So it's obvious this was a plot. This was a conspiracy. These witnesses didn't just happen upon it, but no, they were hiding in the shadows. This kind of plot takes some planning, coordination. Furthermore, where's the man in the situation? It takes two to tango, right? Where's he at? Well, a couple observations have been made. Once, maybe he escaped away without them getting him. Doubtful. Here's what I think. Either one of two things. One, this man was procured by the Pharisees to lure this woman into an adulterous situation so that they could catch her and then bring her to Jesus. Or, even worse, perhaps one of the Pharisees themselves was the culprit who lured her into the adulterous act. And he's standing right there. What a despicable plot. It's this kind of thing that, through the centuries, why women grow embittered against male church leadership. That's why we say of our elders, we must be above reproach. Amen? And think of this. Even if they had been in a position to visibly witness the act and have ironclad corroboration, they were also in a position to stop it from happening. You see, a shepherd who loves the law of God, a shepherd who wants to protect the sheep of God, will do whatever he can when that sheep is close to a cliff, not to push her off, but to protect her. They did no such thing, and therefore they were not good sheep. Is it any wonder that later on here in chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus has this to say about these very same Pharisees? He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This entire despicable plot of the Pharisees to bring this woman caught into a, in adultery before Jesus, it was all satanically inspired. In fact, look at this next slide. Satan is the author of self-righteous hatred towards others. If you have this 
better than others idea about yourself. If you have this hypocritical self-righteousness where you stand in judgment of the world, that is satanically inspired. This is what Satan does. This vicious, vindictive self-righteousness. And children, this is why, listen children, this is why we discourage you from being a tattletale. Now it's one thing, and I'm not talking about this, if an adult wounds you, injures you, you go tell another adult, right? When I talk about tattletaling, I'm not talking about an adult taking advantage of you. What I'm talking about is maybe you see a classmate do something they're not supposed to do, or even more common, one of your siblings, and you just say, mom, so-and-so just did this. That's what we call a tattletale. Being a tattletale is whenever you tell on someone else, not because you stand for justice, children, but because you enjoy seeing other kids get in trouble. I'm sure none of our children do that. But that's what being a tattletale is. And it's rooted in Satan. The self-righteous enjoyment of seeing someone else fall. And adults don't miss this. When you see an enemy, maybe somebody at work, perhaps an overbearing boss, or particularly eight days from the midterm elections, someone on the opposite end of your political spectrum, you see them fall publicly, you see them fail, you take enjoyment in that, it's satanic. You applaud that, you celebrate when someone who is your enemy fails, falls, or is exposed. That's not justice, that's evil. It's vile. But what's God's posture towards the destruction of the wicked? Does he revel in that? Does he celebrate that? No. He says in the book of Ezekiel chapter 33, this is the Old Testament God, same as the New Testament God, by the way. God says this, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. And if that's God's posture towards the destruction of the wicked, friends, shouldn't that be our posture? Not to celebrate, not to post memes about it, but to weep and to pray for their repentance. Here in our passage, we see human sinfulness laid bare before us. It is vile, it is disgusting, it is depraved as these Pharisees have stones in their hands ready to pelt this woman to death. And they're taking great enjoyment in it. That's the wickedness. That's the despicable, disgusting plot we see in this passage. Here's the second thing I want us to consider, and that is a difficult problem. As despicable and as deplorable and as disgusting as this conspiracy is by these Pharisees, we have to admit there is considerable genius here. It's well thought out. It's intelligent. It's well-reasoned. Their intention is to fully and finally discredit Jesus. And this situation was suitably crafted for just such an outcome. You see, because the difficult problem they presented to Jesus was really consider these two options. On the one hand, he could urge absolute, no questioning forgiveness. 
And if he did that, they could say, aha, Jesus, you don't respect the law. You don't love the law of God. You don't honor the law of Moses because you're not upholding the law. The law is clear, Jesus. You can't just let her go off scot-free. God is holy. His anger burns righteously against human sin. You can't just brush it off as if, as if nothing happened. That's what he could do on one hand. On the other hand, he could take his stand with the law. And he said, hey, any of you guys bring an extra stone? Hand it to me. I'll be the first. She's guilty. Let's kill her now. If he would have taken his stand like that, would anybody ever come to the feet of Jesus to find grace in time of need? No. They know all I'm going to get from Jesus is condemnation. But what Jesus does, and here's the real dilemma. The real dilemma is how can mercy be exercised when the demands of justice are real and unflinching? How can mercy be given? This, of course, is the grand dilemma presented to the human race. How could God ever show you, show me, any kind of mercy when the demands of his holiness and his justice and his righteousness are clear? We deserve death. That's the divine dilemma. And that's the dilemma that's placed before Jesus. I want you to feel that tension for a little bit because we're going to answer it as we get to the end of the message. So these religious leaders present to Jesus this difficult problem, but he answers the problem, thirdly, by his daunting presence. He displays a daunting presence. Against the backdrop of this terrible and cunning conspiracy, Jesus reveals his absolute mastery over every situation and every circumstance. His response to this dilemma is both unexpected and remarkable. Look again halfway through verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw, a stone, throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, I know the question that's in your mind. What was he writing on the ground? And I'll answer your question with a question. I have no idea. We don't know. We only know what the Bible tells us. We only know what's recorded in the Scripture. And it doesn't say what he was writing. Though There has been some suggestions. Some have suggested, suggested that Jesus was, starting with the oldest down to the youngest, listing their own personal sins as he's writing it in the dust of the stone floor of the temple. Uh, others have suggested that perhaps he's just doodling. Others say, well, no, what he's writing down there may be the names of mistresses of each of these Pharisees, possibly. Others said maybe he's writing down a passage of Scripture, like Ezekiel 33, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Still others suppose, well, maybe he's actually writing down the Ten Commandments, and that would have triggered in their mind the truth from the book of Exodus that God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone with his finger, and here's Jesus on the stone floor of the temple writing with his finger the Ten Commandments. I think that's a possibility too. But at the end of the day, we have to admit, we just don't know what Jesus was writing. But there is something we do know, and that's Jesus' personal presence and his response to these Pharisees completely deterred their action. Notice again verse 7, his challenge. This is the key. He said, let him who is without sin among you 
be the first to throw a stone at her. With these words, just like a, a trap that is armed, he disarmed the trap. He released the tension. The statement could not be construed as one Jesus setting aside the law. He said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Let's uphold the law. But further, he, at the same time, he was protecting the woman because no one dared to take up that challenge. Jesus wasn't setting aside the law. In fact, all of her accusers would have been fully aware that there was a legal procedure that was to be followed when stoning someone to death who committed a capital crime. We find those proceedings in the book of Deuteronomy in the Mosaic Law. Here's what Deuteronomy 17.7 says. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if there was something punishable by death, it went to trial, this person was convicted, the first person to throw, throw a stone was to be the first witness who saw it happen. You're the first witness, you're the second witness, you're the third witness, y'all throw the stones first. So here are these supposed witnesses before Jesus, and he says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Well, those who conspired in this whole plot, they were not without sin, even in this instance. They set the whole thing up. They're wicked. They're sinful. And this one phrase, whoever of you is without sin, you be the first to throw the stone like the law tells us to do. It convicted their hearts. They dropped their stones, and they walked away one by one. Ultimately, Jesus raised the discussion from the level of a legal procedure to the level of moral accountability. Moral accountability. And there was none of them who could stand. And here's this woman, cowering in shame. Now all her accusers are gone. Now let me offer this caveat, because sometimes this statement has been used to justify sin. And here's how. You can't uh, judge me. If you're without sin, you'd be the first to throw a stone. How would we ever have a jury by our peers? There's no jury that could execute a judgment on a criminal because all the ju jury are sinners, right? Every jury member has sin. So no jury, no judge could ever execute justice. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's condemning here is the self-righteous hypocrisy of judging others uh, in a way that will condemn them when you yourself have reason to be condemned. Teachers have a right to punish misbehaving students. Parents have a right to spank their children. Judges have a right to put in harsh penalties for violent criminals. This is human justice that's under God's law. Well, now having dealt with the accusers, Jesus is going to deal with the woman. And that's the fourth principle. Number four, I want us to consider a delivering pardon. We see from the lips of Jesus a delivering pardon. Look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want you to just imagine for a moment that you're this woman. I mean, you've had bad days in your life, but this is the worst day. For one, you're seduced into this adulterous relationship. 
And in the very act, these men with rough hands grab you and pull you out. They drag you into the temple. They have stones in their hands. They throw you down and they begin to argue with Jesus about what should be done to you. You've had bad days. Nothing's like this day. And now, all the accusers are gone. They've all left. And all you have is Jesus. Jesus did three things with this woman. He faced her. He forgave her. And he freed her. He faced her. He forgave her. And he freed her. First, Jesus faced her as their eyes met. Jesus asked her a question. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Then he forgave her. Neither do I condemn you. Now, Jesus did not condone her sin. Neither did he condemn her sin. What did he do? He cleansed her of her sin. Neither do I condemn you. Think about it. Of all the men who were gathered around this adulterous woman, there was only one who met the qualifications to throw a stone. That's Jesus. He was the only one there without sin. He's the only one there with the righteousness and the purity and the holiness who could thrust a stone at her skull. And he said, neither do I condemn you. He faced her. He forgave her, but he freed her. He said, go now. Don't sin anymore. Walk with a life of purpose. He had a new plan for her, not to harm her, but to give her a future and a, and a hope. And this day that started out as the very worst day of her life ended the very best day of her life because she had been set free by Jesus. You know, there comes a time when each one of us must come face to face with Jesus and experience his forgiveness and his freedom. Now, why was Jesus able to speak in this way with such authority and such clarity? How could he say, I don't condemn you either, when he is the judge of the universe? All judgment, as we've learned in John's gospel, has been given to the Son. She deserved, according to the law, to be stoned to death. The law was unflinching. It's one thing to intimidate hypocritical legalists. It's altogether another thing to set aside the righteous requirements of the law and just say, go on, live your life. There's a tension here. Don't miss this. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't look at humans in their sinfulness and say, oh, humans will be humans. Look at them down there playing. It grieves the heart of God. Yeah. It grieves the heart of Jesus. He doesn't just wink at her sin and say, oh, go on, have your merry way. The reason he could resolve this tension between the justice of God and the forgiveness he gave is the cross. The cross. It was on the cross. Hello, justice. Meet mercy. It was at the cross where the justice that I deserved for my sin met the mercy of Christ. And the justice that you deserve for your sin met the mercy of Christ. 
The reason Jesus could speak forgiveness to this woman is not because she was not guilty, but because he knew just a few feet from where they were standing on a hill called Golgotha, he would bear the full punishment for the sin of adultery she committed. He could say, I don't condemn you because he would take the full condemnation for not only her sin, but for all of ours as well. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. He said, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The demands of justice were met by the merciful sacrifice of Jesus in our place. So how are we to apply this message? How are we to apply these truths? Well, a couple of ways I can think of. Here's the invitation for today. If you're here this morning and you've never come face to face with Jesus and experienced his forgiveness and his freedom, today is that day. Come before Jesus in your sinfulness, clothed in the rags of unrighteousness, and confess it to him. But place your faith in what Christ has done on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. And say, I believe. I believe. I trust. I depend. Here's another aspect of the invitation today. Is I think this is probably more likely to happen and to be common in a room like this. And that is, lots of us are carrying around some rocks of condemnation. A lot of us are carrying these things around that we'd really like to pelt on somebody. A lot of us have stones that we cling to today. And perhaps here's the, the message of the Holy Spirit for you. Drop the rock. Just let it go. Release it. You have no right to hold on to that rock of condemnation. But Troy, you don't know how I was wounded. But Jesus does. He says, drop the rock. Let go of it. So here's the invitation for you. In front of this front pew, I have two five-gallon buckets. Yesterday, I went in the creek behind my house and I collected about 60 rocks. We're not stoning anybody. But here's what I want you to do as we respond, as we sing. We're going to sing, come just as you are. Lay your burdens down. Just come grab, grab a rock, some Sharpies right here, and do what I did. Don't write a name. <laughs> here's what I wrote. <laughs> Betrayal. False accusation. Gossip. I've been holding on to this rock for several months. And I'd love to throw it at somebody's head in my humanness. What I want you to do is just write it down and write underneath this communion table. Not on it, don't break the glass. Underneath this communion table. Just drop the rock. I release it, Lord. I, I give it to you. 
I no longer am going to hold this over this person. Just drop the rock of condemnation and hear the words of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that leads to our last thought. Jesus saves us not by despising the justice of the law, but in mercy he has met the righteous demands of the law.